Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy, and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. Over the past 25 years, my guest today has been at the heart of the EU's antitrust community. He's worked as a practicing lawyer in private practice for a leading French law firm. He's been a referendar at the EU's general court. He's held numerous roles within DG Competition, including in the Industry and Consumer Goods Directorate and the Information Communications and Media Directorate. He was deputy head of the Cabernet or Private Office of EU Competition Commissioner Joachim Almunia, with specific responsibility for antitrust and merger control, as well as for EU legislation on antitrust damages. And for the past year, he's had one of the best jobs in Brussels, head of mergers at DG Competition. I'm delighted to welcome Guillaume Lorio. Guillaume, we're at a fascinating inflection point in antitrust enforcement with the established consensus, subject to an array of different critiques that you'll know well, including in particular, that merger control has been too permissive and that agencies have allowed some markets to become too concentrated. As you know, the agency heads in a number of countries, including the US, the UK, Germany, and Australia, have criticized some of their predecessors' records, and in some cases implied that the EC was too permissive. So what's your view? Has the EC got it wrong? Should you have challenged or be challenging more deals? Thank you very much for for having me. I feel very honored. On on this question uh, in particular, I think maybe if one takes a step back, one factor across jurisdiction is the fact that there's an acknowledgement that that industries, markets have become more concentrated globally in the last 20 years, including in Europe. And and our own data show this. We have issued a a policy brief last year on, on this issue. What is interesting is, at least in uh, in the most advanced economies, um, is that the concentration levels are comparatively less high in Europe than than elsewhere. And obviously, there's, there can be a debate as to whether they are less high in Europe uh, due to more rigorous competition enforcement in the past than than other than in other jurisdictions. And and as you know, some would say clearly yes, like Professor Philippon in, in his book. The, the great reversal, but there can be other factors in place, such the, as the digitization of the economy, the globalization trends, etc. But what I see uh, certainly is that uh, there's been there's been a, a long period when we, um, the EU Commission, were perceived and criticized as being more interventionist than than others. And now, indeed, there's been a very radical change in the U.S. In the, under the Biden administration compared to previous periods. So does that mean we've not been vigilant or vigorous enough? I, I, I don't really think so. I think, uh, well, on, on the debate about, uh, you know, concentrated markets and how to intervene in these markets, this is a debate that has been going on for now two decades, and, and it actually led to the to the reform of the merger regulation in 2004, when we decided to, to change the, the compatibility test to, to cover you know, problematic mergers in oligopolistic settings and not only the classic dominance cases. And actually, this is why the, you know, the debate in the, in the, in the CK telecoms uh, litigation is so important you know, to make sure that 
EU merger control remains relevant from that perspective and that the burden of proof remains manageable. So that is one, I think, one interesting aspect of that debate and that is very, you know, relevant nowadays. Uh, but secondly, again, if you look at the statistics, you see that, you know, since 2014, when you look at the phase two investigations in half of the cases where a statement of objections was issued, it ended with a with the deal being blocked or abandoned. So it's difficult to say that, you know, EU merger control has been lax. Then you can debate on one specific case, but overall, the trend has been quite consistent. And if you only look at the statistics this year, uh, I think out of uh, eight phase two investigations, uh, six of these phase two were blocked or abandoned. You know, there were many cases, very horizontal cases, well-known cases, Hyundai Daewoo, and cases that were abandoned, uh, you know, in uh, in construction markets. But we also had, uh, you know, we also blocked a case in the biotech industry with a very novel issue on a on, on non-horizontal case. We approved the Facebook customer merger, but subject to remedies. And I think it was clearly in other jurisdictions. So when we look at the facts, from every angle, I'm not sure to understand the criticism, if any. So I think we'll continue to be vigorous, but we will also remain uh, rigorous in a way in our assessment. Thanks, Guillaume. You mentioned the um, uh, the appointment of progressive antitrust enforcers and thinkers by President Biden in the US. And as you said, there's been a pretty significant change in the rhetoric and policy of the US agencies with Jonathan Cantor at the Department of Justice saying, I'm here to declare that the era of lax enforcement is over and the new era of vigorous and effective enforcement has begun. And FTC Chair Lena Khan calling for a sweeping reassessment of, of competition law. So what's your reaction? Has this affected the way that the European Commission is thinking about the European merger regulation and your enforcement practice? Well, first, we've always had a, a very strong relationship with the, with the US agencies, the DOJ, the FTC, even when our views have differed from time to time. Uh, and, and you know very well that there's sometimes been differences of approach. Uh, there are well-known cases, but you know, even cases like Dow DuPont or, or G. Alstom or, or even Microsoft LinkedIn, you know, there are cases where there were diverging outcomes in terms of, you know, the scope of the interventions or the scope of the remedies. And there are, you know, there's been such cases without going back 20 years ago. Now, what is what is evident is that the, the pandemic in the US has now swung in the other direction, being more interventionist you know, something we all thought might happen at, at some time in one way or another. Uh, but I wouldn't say it has affected the application of the EU merger regulation as such. What, what I think rather happened is that it has affected the perceptions from uh, those observers, including maybe some EU judges uh, who may have thought some time ago that we were very interventionist, uh, that now realize that, you know, we are interventionists when problems are identified, but we also quite balanced. Um, 
So that is my 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 perception on, on that question. And, and I think there are very inherent reasons for that. You know, we, we're in a system which is not a prosecutorial system, but it's an administrative system requiring us to take objective and, and motivated decisions either way. Uh, and we express ourselves on the cases once they've been adopted. I think what we have in common with the US, interestingly, is that despite having very different systems as such, we are both subject to a very close and intense judicial scrutiny and very high standards. But both we and our American counterparts sometimes have to, to, be, to be prepared to take some risks from that perspective when we want to deal with uh, an unprecedented issue and there are, there are different ways to announce that and to do it. But ultimately, again, when you look at the enforcement records, frankly, you will see that, that, that they are often very similar. I, I, I saw a report, a very recent report, for example, that last year, US agencies have challenged, challenged 10 transactions, five of which were abandoned, five, the other five being litigated. Whereas on our side, okay, we had eight deals in phase two, four of which were abandoned, two prohibited, and two cleared with remedies. So I think in practice, you know, maybe there's a different style in dealing with um, and announcing how we deal with um, with cases. But I think facts matter uh, when you look at the systems and the potential differences. Thanks, Guillaume. You touched on cooperation between agencies, and you'll recall well the controversy 20 years ago around the European Commission's General Electric Honeywell prohibition decision when the then heads of the US antitrust agencies were quite critical of the European Commission's conglomerate effects concerns. In the years that followed, you and others made quite significant efforts to avoid similar tensions arising in the future. Seems to me we're now in a more uncertain time. Um, do you worry about divergence and what are you doing to try to avoid it? To take an example, are you concerned by the CMA's recent prohibition of a transaction that the European Commission had approved, essentially involving the same global markets? Well, first, I wasn't in DG Comp at the time of D. Honeywell, so uh, my memories do not go that far away, although I know obviously what type of relationship. Uh, was happening at the time from an external perspective. But frankly, since then, uh, indeed, things have, have evolved very positively with the DOJ and the FTC agencies. Um, and nowadays, we have a very close dialogue with the, you know, the, the, the EU-US joint TCPD, uh, uh, so the dialogue that we have on top of the, of the bilateral cooperation. We met uh, last year in that context. We will meet again during the ABA, ABA in March. So, so there are there has always been since then a very close relationship and, and we see that in practice, whoever is in charge. Um, more generally, we've, I think we have a very good relationship with, uh, with other agencies and, and, and obviously one of our priorities is to engage in, in multilateralism. Uh, we're active in the ICN, for example, and, and this year we, 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 we co-chairing the, the merger working group. So, so in terms of, you know, international cooperation and, and from a U.S. perspective in particular, I think things have evolved, you know, positively and we want them to evolve positively. Um, and there's a lot in practice uh, to be said in, in a positive way about the international scene. We see a broad alignment across jurisdiction 
and now on the need to closely scrutinize non-horizontal mergers and tech mergers in particular, as they may raise potentially significant competition concerns. And I think that is an evolution. And when it comes to cooperation on, on, on specific cases, there are, there are many very good examples. NVIDIA ARM was you know, a very important case last year where there was extensive cooperation between the US, the UK, and, and the EU on, on a case which is uh, non-horizontal again. And there are many other examples you know, of, of, of excellent cooperation, maybe in less known cases, uh, classic horizontal cases, um, where there was an alignment on remedies, you know, Parker Maggot is, uh, is a recent case, uh, Selenis Dupont, you know, important cases from an industrial perspective. And, you know, everything happens as it should happen. There's good alignment, good understanding on the issues. And when markets are similar, issues are similar, you know, obviously, I think there's no divergence as such. Um, and of course, even if we or other agencies are the only ones to intervene in a case, that doesn't necessarily mean that there was a lack of alignment, uh, especially where markets are different. Now, it may it is true that we may not always have the same outcome. We have different legal systems. The EU, as you know, has to take a position explicitly and produce a, a reasoned decision either way, uh, whether it's positive or negative, we can't sit back. We have to take a position, and, and, and that's one of the positive aspects of our, of our system for, for, for companies and, and practitioners, I believe, because it gives some predictability. We're also subject to very strict judicial review, and, and uh, you know that is normal. So the evidence we have in our market investigations is ultimately the only basis for our decisions to intervene or not, and this is a reality. So alignment is not an end in itself. We, we cooperate. We try to, to come to, to common outcomes in the interest of companies and enforcement. But ultimately, we have to take our own decisions in light of the evidence we have got, gathered and so on. on. On the divergence with the CMA, uh, frankly, I believe that generally we have very similar outcomes on, on the vast majority of cases that are subject to parallel review. Um, and in those where we have diverged, you know, as I have said before, uh, it may happen, but it may happen for legitimate reasons, you know, because there are different market definitions, different uh, types of customers, and a different legal test and different system, obviously. So am I concerned about divergence? Well, not if this is for good reasons, for the reasons I've uh, uh, I've, I've indicated, so objective reasons. Obviously, I do recall uh, the time of the Cargotech prohibition decision by the CMA. And to some extent, when I saw the FT article, uh, there was an FT article essentially implying that it was an example of the so-called Brexit dividend uh, because it would empower to take uh, you know, different decisions. Then yes, I was concerned because I would be concerned if the, re the reason for the, the decision was not the objective reasons I was mentioning. On our side, we were surprised given the extensive feedback we had from our market analysis, but so be it. I think we stand by our decision and by our system. Thanks, Guillaume. The divergence, as you know, between the Commission and the CMA that we were just talking about um, was largely around um, 
the question of whether the remedies package that you'd accepted, um, the CMA viewed uh, favorably. I'd like to ask you a question about your remedies uh, policy. As you know, you've historically been ready to approve uh, transactions, certainly transactions raising uh, non-horizontal issues on the basis of non-structural remedies, what some call behavioral commitments. Uh, and particularly over the last few years, some other agencies, the CMA in particular, but the US agency heads to some extent too, have mm -hmm. been critical of those sorts of remedies. Has this affected your view? Are you more skeptical about non-structural remedies than you were in the past, or do you feel you have a pretty good record of enforcing them? Well, I mean, first, let, let me say that we consider ourselves very strict on, on, on the remedy criteria. Uh, you know well that, you know, the principles around remedies in the EU is that they have to, to eliminate all the competition concerns that, that we've identified entirely. They have to be comprehensive. They have to be effective from all points of view, whatever the nature of the remedy. Uh, and we take these criteria very seriously, and, and, and this approach has been vindicated recently by the court in cases dealing with structural remedies where we, we blocked the deals, I mean, essentially in Violent and in, um, in, in the ThyssenKrupp case, because we thought that the divestitures that were proposed, so structural remedies, were not viable enough for, for, for different reasons. And I think the test of the effectiveness, the viability has been, you know, has been vindicated again by the court, which is very important. Now, it is well known that our preference, our priority is about divestiture remedies. They are the norm and non-divestiture remedies can only be the exception. And, and that has not changed. That has not changed for a long time. This is demonstrated by our practice. Uh, and last year, you will see that we had out of uh, 12 remedies cases, I think, one which was a non-divestiture remedy, um, and it was the Facebook customer uh, case about API interoperability or access. We had other non-horizontal cases where we, you know, divestitures were required and and um, solved the issue. Um, the reality is that the course also requires us to examine the remedies that are tabled to us. We can't just dismiss them out of hand, we have to examine them to make an assessment. We can't sit back. And in practice, and I think that's where we need to, to go, what, what happens in, in practice? The question that generally arises about whether a non-divestiture remedy is acceptable or not, this question arises in generally non-horizontal cases where a divestiture would not be conceivable to solve the concern in the first place. And, and because the, a, a business divestiture as such would not necessarily solve the issue as such. And in those cases, there are situations where the concern, the concern, concern has been well circumscribed or well identified and where a non-divestiture remedy can be tailored, focused. And if such a remedy is in line with the market expectation, in line with the market feedback, that it can be to some extent monitored to to some extent by the market, because there are not too many players. I think that's what happened in a case like Facebook customer or in Microsoft LinkedIn, where there was an issue about interoperability and access. Uh, they were not 
there were no competition concerns beyond that. The market was expecting such guarantees, felt that it could be monitored, the market test was positive, etc. So in practice, this is the these are the cases what I see where you know it's been accepted by way of exception, but it's been considered unaccepted. Now there are also transactions that that raise uh, you know a, a wide ranging um, wide range of competition concerns, and or whether merged entity you know is is likely to adopt. Uh, various types of different foreclosure strategies, which makes the whole you know case very complex, and and in particular to consider a remedy that would be able to comprehensively deal with all these issues. This was the case, for example, in Illumina Grill, where the fear of the commission—it's obviously litigated now—was that there was a myriad of potential foreclosure strategies. It would have been very complex to deal with them for various reasons. And on top of that, and very importantly, the market feedback was very negative. So, you know, there are different categories. It's not a kind of top-down approach. It's a bit bottom-up. But what I see in practice are those distinctions that are, that are, that are very relevant. And, and in summary, under the, you know, under the EU system, the facts, the evidence are, are, are really paramount when determining whether a remedy is a viable solution or not. Uh, and that, I think, is the priority. And now turning to maybe the second side of your question regarding the international comparisons or criticisms, I think they should be based on facts. They should be based on facts because, uh, as I mentioned last year, not only we, we only accepted one one non-structural remedy in a case, the Facebook uh, customer case, for, 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 for good reasons, I believe, and others didn't intervene, by the way. But also, I understand that in other jurisdictions, and, and even the CMA has accepted non-structural remedies in other cases. So uh, we had a case uh, in common, Guigues-Quance, which is very well known, where, where the case was solved uh, with a divestiture in Europe. And I think in the UK, it was solved with a, with a behavioral remedy. It was a horizontal case. So, and I know that other agencies in Europe sometimes just take note of some promises without making them explicit remedies. So I think we are on par with other agencies in terms of only accepted, accepting non-structural remedies in very limited circumstances. But, you know, let's look at the record. So it sounds like you're relatively comfortable with your record of the past of accepting non-structural remedies. And in cases where you're not convinced that those remedies will be effective or you'll be able to oversee them for a period of time, then the only course may be to prohibit or, I guess, in some cases, approve if, uh, if you think that's where the evidence lies. I mean, being comfortable... Again, I think it's it's an exception. We don't think it's the panacea, so we are very vigilant on remedies generally. So, again, uh, even with divestitures, we have many. For example, last year we had many um, many upfront buyer clauses in some divestiture remedies, and we even more vigilant with uh, with non-structural remedies. So there are the exception. You know, being comfortable means that. We hope that ex post, we've done something for the market that makes it work. Sometimes we have to block, 
But there are many cases where we have intervened with those types of remedies where others have not. So that's, that should also be the comparison. Now we hope we make them work and, and we really try to. But indeed, one of the problems with non-structural remedies is the monitoring, the effectiveness. Uh, and on that, we are very vigilant. And, and if it's excessive, we will not accept them. So, so there is an evolution. We are very critical in looking at those. Um, but for now, I think we should keep that perspective, as I just said, about you know, the relative range of cases in which that happens, under which circumstances, and what is the system of review that we have in Europe, where we have to explain whether we should accept them or not. Thanks, Guillaume. I'd like to turn to uh, a slightly different critique of the Commission's enforcement practice, um, namely that it's been um, uh, uh, too strict. Um, it's been insufficiently flexible to allow the creation of champions, whether they be European or national champions. And I think successive commissioners, including Commissioner Vastea, have been steadfast in uh, defending the Commission's independence uh, in that respect. One aspect of that debate, as you know, was the observation that uh, European companies or some European companies should be protected from acquisition by uh, foreign actors that maybe were receiving uh, state subsidies. Uh, your reaction to some of this debate has, has been in part to rethink the market definition uh, notice to take um, uh, more regard to global competition. And of course, we've seen uh, the adoption of FDI regimes at the national level and at the EU level, the foreign subsidies regime. So my question after all of that throat clearing is, how do you see these new tools working alongside the merger regulation? In particular, how do you think you're going to integrate the assessment of foreign subsidies into your application of the merger regulation? And do you think we're going to see an uptick in cases where you uh, challenge member states for intervening on non-competition grounds to stymie transactions that you've approved? So maybe first on the, on the foreign subsidies regulation and the interaction with the EU merger regulation, uh, your question about the integration is a very relevant question. But what, what is clear is that those two regulations have are have two different aims. They are two different instruments. The FSR is really about ensuring that subsidies granted by third countries, notably when an undertaking decides to acquire with some financial support uh, by a third country, a company that is established in the EU. And the aim is then to make sure that it does not provide an advantage, a competitive advantage, and cause distortions in the internal market. And I believe it's an assessment that is very close and similar to what is done in our state aid uh, framework, um, because irrespective of the market concentration uh, under state aid, we would typically look at whether the acquisition process has been distorted, for example. So, so it's really a state aid assessment rather than a merger assessment. In mergers, the, the, the test is fundamentally different and should remain so. So rather than an integration, I think precisely the aim is to keep the two objectives very distinct, not to have a stated assessment in the context of a merger control system, but rather keep it distinct and have, and that was the aim of the adoption of the FSR, a different, a different approach to those very different 
issues because a transaction may not be problematic under merger control. Um, when you have a company not present, buying one in the EU with no overlaps, et cetera. Whereas under the FSR, you know, for the reasons I mentioned, it may become problematic. So these are very different logics and instruments. And I think it's good to make that very clear. Um, more generally on the FDI regimes, um, I mean, you know, very, you know very well the system under EU merger control that um, the merger regulation allows member states to adopt measures that would be stricter than our interventions um, if they were to protect legitimate public interests. And they are, you know, they are very well known public interests uh, like uh, public security, plurality of the media, uh, and others that need to be notified. And uh, what is important is that member states, if they invoke these rules, do it in a way that is uh, genuinely aimed at protecting uh, those legitimate interests. Um, and fundamentally, and fundamentally, the aim is uh, of these provisions is to avoid disguised protectionism. So to your question as to whether you think or we think that we would have to intervene more and more um, against measures that member states may take for on non-competition grounds to uh, prevent transactions that we've approved, I think we know the framework. We had several cases a long time ago about these type of interventions. And we had one last year against Hungary on the basis of Article 21 where we found that Hungary had infringed the merger control regulation and those fundamental principles of the single market when it um, blocked the acquisition of, um, of a European business, uh, insurance business in Hungary by uh, a Dutch company. So, you know, when member states intervene on uh, so-called legitimate interests, but it's difficult to understand uh, how proportionate and how justified it is. Yes, we will not hesitate to challenge these interventions. But what I hope is that uh, it will not happen uh, too often. Thanks, Guillaume. I can't help uh, but ask you a question about the jurisdictional scope of the merger regulation. As you know well, uh, bright line revenue-based thresholds, a clear division of powers between the Commission and national agencies have been central to the architecture of EU merger control since the merger regulation was adopted over 30 years ago. You'll know too, um, in March 2021, in an effort to ensure that anti-competitive transactions didn't escape scrutiny in Europe, the Commission adopted a guidance paper encouraging national competition authorities, if it came across transactions uh, that didn't meet their own thresholds, but which they thought raised concerns, uh, to refer those transactions to the Commission under Article 22 of the regulation. You'll know too uh, that the guidance paper uh, has been applauded by some, but it's been controversial uh, as well. Some business organizations have criticized the uncertainty it creates, and some national agency heads, including the president of the FCO in Germany, have some reservations about its legal basis. To date, the new policies produce only one referral, the Illumina Grail transaction, which, as you know, was subsequently prohibited and is under appeal. So I have a few questions. How should we interpret the relative paucity of referrals to date? Is that an indication of the uncertainty that the litigation has generated or an indication that the new tool is going to be applied as sparingly 
and only exceptionally. Um, a second question, are you receiving many requests for informal guidance? Because that's one of the possibilities that's open uh, to companies under the guidance paper. And finally, what advice would you give uh, companies who are grappling uh, with this new tool and trying to figure out what to do? Okay, on, on the first part of your of your question on the on the paucity of referrals, um, well, first, I mean, it is ironic uh, because uh, there was a lot of uh, criticism at the at the beginning of this um, uh, of, of the launch of this approach to Article Twenty Two about the you know the uncertainty about catching many you know many unwarranted deals. Um, and um, you know we've always made clear that one of the rationale of this approach was to make sure that we have this the, we have a safety net, but it wasn't meant to be a, a catch-all if if I, if I may say. Uh, so so it's it's normal in the first place that there's not a flood of of cases. Um, I can't say or I can't promise they would only be one a year. But it's not about targets, you know. Really, this reform is about being relevant in dealing with the cases that weren't, uh, that should deserve a review at at the EU level. Uh, what is certain is that we only want to review, indeed, those mergers that may pose a threat to 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 competition in the market, even if the target has no significant turnover. And that's that's the aim. That's the only aim. And we want to make sure that those mergers don't escape a review. Now, what is the scope of, in practice, the informal guidance of, uh, of the requests we get, of the cases we examine? You have to know that so far in practice, we've considered more than 30 cases for potential review. Uh, and except for the Illumina Grail, which is indeed under litigation, which also create that you know there's a there's a time lag between the full implementation and and the end of the litigation but still i think we're working full speed on on this on this approach and we see that out of you know we we looked at this at, at more than 30 cases as i said and none of them give, gave rise to an article 22 referral under the, the the guidance that you referred to under this kind of new or recalibrated approach as we say um, and, and there are different reasons for that. Um, half of the cases we looked at uh, were out of an ex officio screening. So our units in different areas and sectors, you know, they're vigilant, they monitor the markets, and, and sometimes we look ex officio in some cases. We ask questions to the parties to see whether they should be good candidates. The other half uh, were brought to the, to the Commission's attention. Uh, either by merging parties, by national competition authorities, or by complaints. Now, in these cases where ultimately a referral was not warranted under the new approach, we came to that conclusion either because uh, we found that the target's turnover, you know, properly reflected its competitive potential or, or was not, you know, uh, undervaluing, under assessing, underestimating that competitive potential. Uh, we looked at the magnitude of the transaction value. We looked at the likelihood of competition concerns. You know, it was a kind of pre-screening. But interestingly, some cases were also detected before it became clear that they would be notifiable in any event to some NCAs. And then ultimately they were, and uh, they were referred to us under classic Article 22 referral, which is a very interesting, interesting development. 
So on the one hand, I would say that this policy has allowed, has allowed us to, to be made aware and to some extent ex exercise some screening on some transactions while making the, the approach to, to 22 a, a very you know, targeted and proportionate one. So it gives the, the flexibility to member states to, to ask for referral, the flexibility to the commission to target concentrations which, which really merit a review without imposing a notification obligations on transactions that do not deserve such review. So, you know, that's really my, my feedback on how the tool is working. I think it's working well and it will work interestingly well. And my advice to companies, as always, is, you know, is to, is to come to us if, if they can't self-assess really the likelihood of, of a referral being made either way. Um, and, and we see that from some companies and, uh, we've, we've provided some guidance, um, but we are available and we see in practice that it's, it's working. We have already issued a comfort letter in a case and, and we had, uh, we had exchanges that ultimately were very useful. So again, this is extremely interesting. Do you plan, uh, some sort of, uh, guidance paper on the guidance paper in due course? when you've accumulated a bit more experience i think it would be it would be a good a good step forward at some point indeed on the process on the substance now as i said we still have this appeal in court with the european court of justice i think the the judgment of the of the general court was very comprehensive but still i think there's you know there should be a clear guidance from the from the highest court and the more the practice will evolve, things will stabilize, and the more there will be, you know, scope for giving even further indications and guidance, I believe. Thanks, Guillaume. As you know well, um, the Commission's Article 22 policy um, focused in particular on two areas, the pharmaceutical area and the uh, digital sector. And there's an interesting interface, I think, between Article 22 and the Digital Markets Act. Uh, which, as you know, among other things, requires digital gatekeepers to inform the Commission about their transactions. A question for you is, are you planning to systematically review those notifications? I know they're not formal notifications in the sense of form CO. Um, and where you see one that interests you, uh, will you uh, provoke um, a member state to consider a reference? So first on, 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 your, on the first part of your question, yes, we, we intend to, to look systematically uh, at the transactions that uh, are, we are informed of uh, under this Article 14 of the DMA when uh, designated gatekeepers uh, will inform us about uh, such transactions. And, and we also require to pass on the information received under that provision to member states. So indeed, we look. We will not put that uh, away. We will look at what's happening, and and in practice, I think for for transactions that may result in uh, in overlaps or in vertical or conglomerate relationships, I think my best advice is that those gatekeepers uh, should engage with us proactively, with a view to to quickly getting uh, on our side a better understanding of whether we should consider um, the transaction as a good candidate for referral to provoke an invitation or, or to alert uh, an NCA. And I think, frankly, in practice, 
as I said, in the, in the usual context of Article 22, that would be my best advice anyway, because it avoids delays and, and it allows to have a good understanding also on our side, rather than suspicions and investigations at an early stage. So sometimes, you know, it may lead to, to a referral and, and, a, and, a, and a close review. Sometimes we may understand that, uh, you know, the perception is different, but I think we will indeed, um, we will systematically look at the information that is passed on to us through this provision, which, by the way, is another, another indication that the EU legislator, the parliament and the council, found that Article 22 was the most proportionate way of dealing with uh, and the most effective way of dealing with these type of transactions where the target is not necessarily significant in terms of turnover. Uh, and that response may be to the other criticism about Article 22 that you referred to earlier. So thank you, Guillaume. That's that's interesting guidance. It's obviously an interesting uh, development in uh, the practice uh, without going back in time too much as to Article 22. As you know, its original um, a conception was a device for member states that didn't have merger control rules at the time to refer transactions that they were concerned about. And in a sense, over 30 years, that uh, policy has evolved. I'm not sure people necessarily conceived of how it would evolve in the way it has done now, which isn't necessarily to say that means it's unlawful or mm -hmm. um, uh, it's not a good idea or, or anything like that. But um, it is an evolution, it seems to me, where having a system a little akin to uh, one that you have in the uh, UK, where companies yeah. can submit briefing papers to really test the agency's test the agency's interest, with the added complication maybe here, but the commission maybe reaches a view and then it has to go and find one or more member states to uh, yeah. to reach a similar view. I'm not passing judgment on whether that's good or bad, but it but it's a somewhat different um, somewhat different architecture that was conceived in the, uh, conceived by the architects of the merger regulation. Just before the quick, sorry, I mean, please respond. No, no, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, maybe 30 years ago, the Dutch clause was not considered mainly for, for the, the, the scenario you mentioned. That being said, you know, it was considered as a corrective mechanism. So, so the whole essence of the, referral of the referral mechanism, either way, up or downward, is a way to correct the inherent deficiencies of a system based on notifications. Uh, but it's a corrective mechanism. It has to be proportionate. It has to be relevant. So the fact that markets evolve, issues evolve, I think it's inherent to good legislation to be able to tackle it. Because otherwise you have to modify, like in some jurisdictions, your regulations every second year. And is it good for legal predictability? I don't think so. So I think you have to go to the rationale of the, of the, of the regulation of any legislation to the literal interpretation. And that's what the court did. And still, in some systems in Europe, maybe one, you don't have a merger control regulation. So, you know, you have to keep these provisions and these regulations relevant. Otherwise, what? We go into a legislative process for the next years and get unanimity to modify a system for an alternative system that doesn't seem to me necessarily more relevant or more practical. So, you know, I, I think that's where we are. I think the legislators saw it. The general court saw it. Many practitioners saw it. Now let's see what the, the court will say. Thanks, Guillaume. So a last question before we turn to the quickfire questions at the end. 
I'd like to ask you about your position as uh, head of mergers at TG Competition, surely one of the best jobs in town, if not the world. Mm -hmm. When you took on the role, did you have an agenda? Can you tell us something about your priorities? And if it's not too cheeky, how do you think you're doing? Uh, that's a very good question. Uh, you know, on my agenda and, and my priorities or our priorities, I think it's not personal. You know, it's not a personal agenda. It shouldn't be. It's an, it's an institutional ag agenda, um, you know, liaising with the, our director general, our commissioner. But but frankly spe speaking, I think the priority for, for, for practitioners in DigiComp and in the merger control network in particular is to make sure that EU merger control remains relevant in all these aspects. You know, we just mentioned Article 22, but there are also the, the, the new substantive issues. So remaining relevant and also remaining consistent in the sense of uh, avoiding double standards and being consistent with the, the rules and the law that we have. Uh, and being relevant, you know, it, it, it means in practice being able to, to tackle not only traditional issues that we, we discussed today, you know, concentration issues that matter for the for, for people, but for the economy, for the competitiveness of, of companies in Europe, etc. Uh, it also means, uh, you know, being able to deal efficiently with uh, with new new challenges, uh, be these challenges in biotech, uh, in tech, or any other sector for that matter. Uh, so it means being ready to to examine novel issues that arise from these new market trends, these new market realities, and, and tackle them effectively, even if it is unprecedented. So that's, for me, one very important aspect of the agenda, of the priority. Uh, the other side of the coin is being consistent, uh, as I just meant, in the sense that, you know, you continue respecting the rule of law, and it's quite fundamental these days. Um, uh, it means being rigorous on the, how we look at the facts, uh, how we have an evidence-based approach uh, from the start um, in our market investigations, but also in our decisions uh, when we assess remedies uh, or where we take different decisions. And I think it's our best asset against um, undue political influence, undue rhetoric, um, this is really about consistency and steadiness, being being sure about our values, uh, sticking to the fundamentals, and yet being ready to 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 uh, again taking um, taking risk when when warranted about new new issues and, and new challenges. So ultimately, I think for me, it's being comfortable uh, that we're making the right decisions either way, one way or the other and being ready to go to court when necessary to defend these decisions that can be challenged either way also. So that is my fundamental agenda, uh, case by case. Thanks, Guillaume. And a few quick fire questions to end. Uh, first, what's your proudest achievement and your greatest regret? Proudest achievement? Uh, listen, I don't want to, to, to go through specific uh, cases or issues. I think genuinely my... my my, I think my achievement, or at least one where I'm, uh, I feel I'm, I'm proud of, of it, is that I think in the, you know, in my directorate before in, in, in telecoms and tech and media, and now in my, uh, with my new team in the, in the merger network, I think uh, my achievement is to have been able to, I, I believe, uh, 
put in place um, a good uh, culture of uh, competition enforcement, a good management culture, a good team culture, where um, everyone plays a role, uh, bottom up. Uh, every expert plays a role. Every manager plays a role with a, with an agenda that matches what I just said about being comfortable uh, about the the decisions to be taken and and being ready to confront you know the adverse opinions, but uh, provided we, we we rely on facts and evidence. So I think that's my maybe my goal. And for the moment, I my sense is that we're achieving that. Now maybe let's see. Because, um, you know, the other side of your question being my greatest regret, I have no regret yet. Uh, so, so maybe we'll see in a, in a, few, in a few months or, day, or years whether that achievement um, is a reality or not. I hope we can do this in a few years' time again. And we'll, see, <laughs> yeah. we'll see if you change. So yeah. uh, second, second of three quickfire questions. If you could change one thing about EU merger control, what would it be? Again, I think EU merger control has many, many assets. Uh, the transparency, the, the fact that we have to take decisions either way. So it's a balanced system. It's a motivated system for good reasons, you know, due to the EU integration of several member states, you know, to show that there's a balanced way of dealing, no double standards between companies, depending on their nationalities and so on. I think it's a great asset. Um, but what I could change or what I would change if possible, but I know, I know very much that it's, it's difficult is, is sometimes to get, to get a fast, uh, judicial review on those important cases where, you know, it has an impact on how we deal with ongoing reviews. I think that would be maybe my, my wish, um, for EU merger control. That's a refreshing answer. At least a couple of people um, whom we've had on the podcast in different jurisdictions have said, that in effect, they'd like to see less judicial review. So it's good to hear you asking for at least as much and faster. And finally, Guillaume, is there one thing you can tell us about yourself that isn't widely known? Nothing that is not widely known uh, is worth really mentioning. I think I have many. I have another, you know, I have a private life, which is, uh, I think, very nice. I have other center of, uh, centers of interest, but um, I'm not sure your auditors would be interested. <laughs> Thanks, Guillaume. Having known you for, um, I don't know, well over 20 years, I guess, I can attest that what you see is very much what you get. Oh. Um, it's been a terrific, uh, terrific interview today. Thank you for joining the podcast and uh, good luck in... Uh, in the next year and as i say what is a really tremendous job thank you very much for joining us today on the cleary gottlieb antitrust review look forward to welcoming you to our next edition <laughs>